Good morning, everyone. We're going to be continuing our uh, series in the book of Hebrews, so we're going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. God's Word says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father in heaven, may we see, understand, and learn wondrous things from your word today that our hearts and lives may be inclined more and more to you for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Pastor Alistair Begg says that when we come to a difficult passage of Scripture, we have to remember that the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. Now, there are some things in this passage Uh, that can be complicated or confusing. But the author really is plain about the main thing, and it is this. He's concerned that the readers, and by association us, he's concerned that they do not fail to enter God's rest. We know this is so because he mentions the word rest or rested at least 10 times in the passage. So in his concern that they don't fail to enter God's rest, he exhorts them to fear that they don't fail to enter it. And he exhorts them to strive to enter it. So that's what he's getting at. Those are the plain and the main things. So now we're going to consider what this rest is all about and what he means by this fear and striving. First, a little review. You may may remember that this uh, book of Hebrews is written to a church made up of mostly Jewish 
Christians. And they're experiencing persecution for their faith in Christ. And so, as a result, they're, they're, they're tempted to abandon Jesus and return to their old ways, their old practices of Judaism. And so the writer wants them to persevere in what they have come to believe and to help them to do that. He gives them, as we heard last week, a history of the early Jews who had come out of Egypt and were preparing to enter God's rest in the promised land. The writer quotes from Psalm 95, which describes how these early Jews failed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief and disobedience. So he gives them a strong warning. He says, don't be like them. Don't let sin deceive you. Don't have an unbelieving and evil heart as they did, leading you to fall away from the living God. And he builds on this in our text this morning, giving us even further reason to persevere in Jesus and enter God's rest. So our first main point, what is this rest? What is God's rest? First of all, he calls it my rest. God calls it my rest in verses 3 and 5. And so it's the rest that God himself enjoys. And all true believers enter into that rest. We see that in verses 3 and 10. We first hear of God's rest after his work of creation in Genesis chapter 2. After six days of creating everything in the world, we learn that God rested on the seventh day from his created work. Meaning, uh, there was nothing more to be done when it came to creation. He completed it all. Now, this doesn't mean that God ever stops working. That's not the point of that. God never slumbers or sleeps. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is always sovereignly at work, and he's always working in the lives of his children in Jesus. If that is you, he is at work. He doesn't sleep or slumber when it comes to what he's doing in your life. He cares for you, and he's at work. But it's this particular work of creation that God rests from. And now, after he's done it, he just enjoys it. He's blessing it. He's ruling over it. He's enjoying fellowship with the people he created there at the beginning. And this rest is not something that just happened on the seventh day. It, it's a rest that continues on into eternity. If you remember from Genesis 2, when he's going through the, the days of creation, he says, I created this on this day, and it was morning and evening the first day. Second day I created, uh, morning and evening second day. When it goes all the way to the sixth day. At the seventh day, no mention of morning and evening. It just says he blessed the seventh day. He made it holy. It continues forever. That's, what's God's, that's what God's rest means. And we were made to enjoy that rest with him from the beginning of creation into all eternity. We also read about the rest that God's people could have in the land of Canaan. Canaan's rest. We see that in verses 2 and 6. This is about God's people being delivered from Egypt and preparing to enter the promised land of rest. This is where they would rest from their 
centuries of slavery. They would have rest from all their enemies surrounding them. God would protect and provide for them. They would enjoy his presence and they would live under his blessing in the land. But verse 2 says that that generation failed to enter that rest. Because although they heard the good news, what was their good news? The good news that God's going to bring them into this land. He's going to protect them. He's going to provide for them. He's going to give them. They heard that good news. It didn't do them any good. Because what they heard, it says, was not united by faith with those who listened. Those who listened. He's talking about Joshua and Caleb, the ones who actually believed God and later entered the land. So because of Unbelief leading to disobedience, that generation never entered God's rest. And they wandered the desert for 40 years. However, the next generation, led by Joshua, did enter into the promised land and experienced rest. Joshua 21, 44 says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, and not one of their enemies had withstood them. So they enjoyed God's rest in Canaan, but only to a degree. That generation under Joshua and the generations that follow also eventually disbelieved God and disobeyed him. And so a greater, more ultimate rest was still needed. And here's how we know why. Because it says centuries later, God, speaking through King David in Psalm 95, offers that rest again in verse 7. And then in verse 8, it says, if Joshua had given them rest, if, if this was the final and full rest of God, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the rest of Canaan was not complete. It was not a completed rest. But it did point to a greater more ultimate rests still to come. In these expressions, these offers of God's rest, we see God's people fail to enter because of disbelief and disobedience. What perfectly began, what began perfect in the garden, creation's rest, was then tainted by sin. And although our first parents, Adam and Eve, were removed from God's kingdom paradise, God made a way. <laughs> Those are great words. God made a way to restore fellowship with him and to, so that they would come again under his rule and blessing. You may remember that after Adam and Eve sinned, they were ashamed because of their sin and they realized they were naked. Now, they were naked before. It wasn't a problem until they sinned. Why? Because their nakedness was an outward picture of their inward shame. And so they try to cover themselves, right? They, they use fig leaves to cover themselves up. But God was not satisfied with this attempt to cover their own shame. Instead, he covers them with animal skins. To be restored to fellowship with God, our sin shame must be paid for with a blood sacrifice. That's what the animal skins were. They were God's first sacrifice to cover humanity's sin and shame. This requirement of sacrifice for sin continued in the history of God's people. But, but 
Hebrews later in chapter 10 says that the blood of goats and bulls cannot remove the sins of men and women. Only a man can pay for the sins of a man. And so those earlier sacrifices, if they, if they had been enough, they wouldn't need to be re repeated every day and every year. There was something more needed. A greater sacrifice was needed, an ultimate one, and that is Jesus, who is God in human flesh. By his sinless life, he would be a perfect and acceptable sacrifice to all who would repent and believe. That's why we're here this morning, right? To remember and rejoice in God's gracious gift of his son, delivering us from the slavery of sin, giving us forgiveness of sin, bringing us into the kingdom of his glorious son. That son who did not stay dead, right? But rose again from the dead and who lives forevermore. And in him, we have peace and reconciliation with God forever, forever. It's by faith alone in Jesus that we enter God's rest. This rest in, in Jesus begins and ex is experienced by all true believers and will be fully enjoyed one day when Jesus comes for his people. It is entering that full and final rest that the author is concerned about. Because as we heard last week, persevering to the end, holding on to our, our faith, our confidence, our hope in Jesus to the end, that demonstrates that we have actually entered into God's rest. And since the author's primary concern is that we may fail, right? That's what we read at the beginning. Since his concern is that we might fail to enter God's rest, he says, we need to be afraid. We need to be afraid. It says in verse 1, let us fear, lest any of you should have failed to reach it, reach God's rest. Now, we don't like talking about being afraid. Right? There's, there's enough to be afraid about, right, in this world. And we especially don't like talking about being afraid when it comes to our relationship with God. I mean, after all, the most frequent command in the scripture is do not be afraid. So when we hear that we are to be afraid in relation to God, that can really rub us the wrong way. We can, we can bristle at it. We can kind of ignore or deny it. Or we can really resist it. But it's there. We, we, we have to deal with it. Because this is not some guy writing. It is God, God's word speaking to us. So what is it that he wants us to be afraid of? The answer is in the verse right before this one, in chapter 3, verse 19, where it says, they, the wilderness generation, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So they, the writer's saying, and we should be afraid of unbelief. We should be afraid of hearing the voice of God in his word. We should be afraid of hearing about his promised rest in Jesus and no longer believing in it or acting on it. That's what we should be afraid of. Now, now this is not 
about living in constant fear about whether I'm saved or not, whether I'm in God's rest or not. That's not the point. It's about the fear of falling into unbelief. That's what we need to be afraid of. Because, friends, that's what happened to those early Jews, right? They were delivered by Yahweh, the God of the Bible, out of slavery, into the promised land. They walked through the Red Sea. They saw the miracles of God. They said they believed. They didn't enter, though, because of unbelief, demonstrating that they didn't really entrust themselves to this God that they said they believed in. And we have to remember in Hebrews, this, this writer is talking to professing believers in Jesus Christ. And so the exhortation is not only for the people he's writing to, you know, he's actually talking to himself. He says, let us, let us fear. And so that means himself and all of us here today. Remember, these Hebrew Christians were going through a really bad time. They were being persecuted for their faith. Some of them are doubting Jesus. They're wavering their faith and they're considering walking away from that, from him. Potentially falling into disbelief leading to disobedience. Now maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're tempted to walk away from Jesus. Even if it's not because of, of, of persecution. Maybe it's because of the things that, that Dan was praying about today. We're, you're dealing with sufferings and hurts and disappointments and struggles with sin and temptation, whatever it might be. And if you're thinking, you know what, this Jesus thing is, is just a bit too much. I'm not sure if I can, I'm not sure if I can keep doing this. If that's you, this writer is saying, be afraid. However, if you are truly in Christ, when you hear this appeal to not be afraid, because you have a genuine love and trust for Jesus, even if it's, it feels like it's waning, even if it feels like it's weak, this, this admonition will not be a paralyzing fear as Author Tom Schreiner says, it's meant to serve us as a stimulus to action. He's exactly right. When I was in high school, senior year, I heard the story about a number of guys in my class uh, who did this thrill-seeking thing. They would get into a car late at night, and uh, they would drive down this side street off of Route 9. And, um, and Route 9, we know, can be a busy road. Uh, so they would begin on the side street in the car. They would begin picking up speed, eventually going as fast as they could and run right through the stop sign at Route 9. Not knowing whether they would be killed or they would kill somebody else. High school boys do stupid things, don't they? 60-year-old boys do stupid things sometimes. Now, you can imagine, right, if their dads found out what, what that, those dads might have said to them. I know what I would have said to my kids. I'd have been like, is something wrong with you? Are you nuts? What, what were you thinking? Obviously, you weren't thinking much. Do you know what could have happened to you or to those innocent people on that road? You are so grounded. Give me those keys right now. You're off the insurance. 
And don't let me ever hear you do something stupid like that again. That could put a little fear into somebody. Now, why would I or any other dad in his right mind say something like that? Because of love. Because of love, that dad would say those things, would give those warnings, because he wants his kid to be a little afraid and to stimulate him to action. He doesn't want to lose his son. He wants him to thrive and to enjoy a full life. He wants their relationship to go on. And if there's any measure of love and respect in that son for that father, if he trusts his dad even a bit, he'll take that warning to heart and he will not do it again. The warning is a means of saving the boy's life to keep the relationship alive. This is simply what God is doing when he says that they should fear not entering into his rest. It's, it's a loving warning of a gracious father who wants his children to persevere in what will bring them their greatest joy, their greatest satisfaction, and that is ongoing and ultimate rest and joy in Jesus. Maybe you're sliding into some unbelief this morning. Maybe you're not even thinking of it as unbelief. Those early Jews didn't. But maybe you're beginning to lean away from Jesus. You're kind of leaning away from the church, leaning away from Christ being at the center, and, 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 and you're beginning to fiddle with sin. And maybe you think, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not going to hurt anyone. I'm not going to let it get out of hand. And, and I think I deserve it because God wants me to be happy. And so it's okay. I think I can, I can handle it. Friends, let me tell you, I went down that road in my early years of faith. Stopped going to church. Stopped hanging out with my Christian friends. Stopped going to small groups. And, and you know what? When it was all happening, I was telling people I was a Christian. But unbelief showed itself in sliding into sin and dabbling with a little compromise and all that sliding and dabbling got more frequent and I went back to my old ways. It was subtle at first. But it wasn't long before I was chest deep in evil. I hurt others, I hurt myself, but worst of all, I dishonored the God and Father who I said I loved, and I shamed the Savior. I shamed Jesus, who gave his life to rescue me from the muck that I ended up going back to. Is that you today? God says to you in this passage, be afraid. Let the warning stimulate you to action. Turn back to trust in Jesus. Turn back to your original profession of hope in Jesus. Maybe that's not you this morning. And if it isn't, thank God for it. Even so, let's not take this warning lightly. Let's not read that and think, oh, it doesn't apply to me. 
1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let anyone who thinks that he stand, take heed lest he fall. The same words in our passage. Even so, let's say you're you're, you're doing okay, you're walking with Jesus, and, and so it's not you, maybe. Maybe it's somebody else you know. Someone who's made a profession of faith, but who is subtly being deceived by sin. You don't have to be the sin police, but you can pray. Oswald Chambers says, discernment, meaning having a a right awareness, a right assessment of someone's spiritual condition. He says, discernment is a call first and foremost to intercession. So don't ignore your friends or fellow believer, professing believers, sliding into unbelief. Don't ignore it. Pray for them. And then consider if you should do something more. Invite that person out to coffee. Have them over for dinner. Invite them back to your small group and to church. And in time, it's possible you may need to talk to them gently and graciously about their sin. And the whole time, let them know you love them. Express your concern that they return to hope in Jesus. So the writer is telling us that we should be afraid of falling into unbelief. It's a gracious warning so that we might not fail, friends, to enter God's rest. Secondly, they must strive to enter his rest. Strive to enter his rest, it says in verse 11. This word strive means make every effort, be zealous and eager for it. One commentator says, entering this rest must be their single most important concern. Why? Because if they lose hold of that, they lose all. Remember, what's his example? The Jews going into the promised land. They didn't strive. They lost hold of it. They lost all. Right? Martin Luther's German reformer says, if you have him, you have all. If you've lost him, you've lost all. Stay with Christ, knowing even though your eyes do not see him and your reason does not grasp him, stay with Christ. So the writer says we are to strive to be diligent to enter God's rest. And now we have to give ourselves a reminder, what is this rest about again? As we said earlier, it's God's rest after his creation work where he enjoyed fellowship with people who were gladly living under his rule and blessing. So it's about enjoying God himself and his promise of heaven, everlasting rest. And so when we think of it that way, Right? Entering God's rest is not about some sort of contract or deal that I make with God. You know, I, I'll pray a prayer. I raise a hand. God has to keep all the, um, all, all the terms of the condition, and then I can just go and do whatever I want. Is that, is that what life in Christ is like? We hear people say, you know, once saved, always saved. Absolutely true. Unless, of course... You make, make some kind of deal or contract with God and you walk away and you have no regard 
for the things of God. You have no love for Jesus. You have no abiding belief in Jesus. And then the word of God says, they left us because they were not of us. By its very nature, our faith in Christ is relational. We, we, we've, we've heard, you know, people saying being, being born again, having faith in Jesus, it's about a personal relationship with him. That's exactly what it is. It's about experiencing a real person. Jesus himself says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, God. This is eternal life, that they know you. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What is it to know God? It's not just knowing information about him. That's good. It's not enough. It's about interacting with him from what we do know from his word. As we begin to talk to him about who he is and what he's like and what he says and what he's done and what he promises to be for us in Jesus. We praise him for who he is. We thank him for his grace and mercy. We respond to him with love and obedience. And if we sin, we respond in repentance and faith. It's about engaging with a real person, right? And this person wants us to experience life to the full. So the writer says, that's what you strive for. Strive for it. And again, we just have to be clear. This is not about doing a bunch of good works for Jesus so that you get into God's rest. That's not, it's not about those works being a condition of getting in good with God. The only way that we get in good is we respond to the good news of the gospel with repentance and faith. And those who do will hear this warning to strive and they'll be stimulus to action. Strive in faith, right? He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to commune with him and know that we might have life to the full. Now, you got to know, I don't have this all figured out. I don't have this all down pat. I still struggle like anyone. No growing believer who's seeking to mature in Christ has it all worked out. And I think I might have shared this with you before. I, you know, I, I, I tell the same stories over and over again. But I don't feel so bad about it anymore because Pastor Paul, who's only 38, he's repeating himself now. <laughs> that makes me feel way better. And he's got a sharp mind. Anyway, so I might have shared this before, but I'm going to say it again. I remember talking to my 92-year-old father-in-law who's been a believer for 72 years. And I said, Dad, I have so much to learn. And he said, oh, so do I. Even the most seasoned believer knows he's got to strive with Jesus. So we have a lot to learn. We have so much to grow in. And we have each other to help with that. You're not a perfect church. We're not a bunch of perfect pastors. 
but we're a blessed church. We help one another. We encourage one another. We spur one another on. Don't neglect that. It's one of the means God has given that we would strive with Jesus. So we who have genuinely repented of our sins and trust in Jesus, we do enter that rest, but we're still encouraged to strive to remain in it. Now, we can experience that rest to a great degree even now. But we know, we know we still live in a broken world where there are struggles, there are temptations, there is evil, there is the dangers and the deceptions of sin. Although we have entered that rest, if we've genuinely in Christ, we, we realize we don't always experience it to the full. At least not yet. Remember, the writer is concerned that they hold on to their hope in Jesus till the end. Till the end. And it's not till that end that we enjoy the fullness and completion of God's rest. And so we read in verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So he uses this term Sabbath rest. In the Greek, it actually doesn't say Sabbath rest. It just says sabbatismos. Now, I, I, don't, I don't speak Greek. I just read that. And I believe the guy. Right? But, but this, this commentator, uh, R.T. France, says that that word, sabbatismos, has the idea of this ongoing Sabbathing. This ongoing principle and reality and sense of enjoying God's rest. And so in verse 9, back in verse 9, the writer says that enjoyment, that Sabbath rest still remains. Okay, well, what's this word remains? It almost sounds like, okay, well, it's still there. Come and take it if you want. No, no, no. It means more than that. It, although rest has begun for every true believer in Christ, it's not yet been fully realized. The rest is not being fully enjoyed. Why not? Because it says that whoever has entered God's rest, listen carefully, whoever has entered God's rest also rests from his works as God rested from his own works. Again, I just want to mention, this is not about doing works to getting good with God, right? Our works are an evidence of genuine faith. These are these works that he's talking about that we have, our works. These are our works in the faith of Jesus, in the mission of Jesus, that are a response to what God has done in saving us in Jesus. Friends, when do we rest from our gospel work, from our gospel service to God? When do we actually fully rest from it? When we die. And we go to be with him. That's when we enjoy full and final heavenly rest. So in a very real sense, rest has begun for us when we entrust ourselves to Jesus. It's something that begins and something that still has to be accomplished. So now we rejoice and rest in the mercy of God. 
We rejoice and rest in his transforming work in our lives. We rejoice and rest in his presence among us individually and in the church. We rejoice and rest in the gifts of his spirit that he uses within the church. We rejoice and rest in the truth of his word, in fellowship, in delighting with him, and in prayer. It's really begun. It has begun. We are different people, right? But it's only partially experienced. And we will not fully enjoy it until, like God, our works are done and we are with him for eternity. Listen to what Revelation chapter 14 says. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed. Why? That they might rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. That's what we have to look forward to. And our passage is telling us to strive for it, moving us closer and closer to it. That's, what the, that's where the writer wants us to get to. And yes, every true believer will enjoy that rest. We can have that assurance. But right now we still wrestle. Sometimes we waver. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we get distracted along the way. So the writer is encouraging us. Stay on the course. Stay on the course, brothers and sisters. Don't let the trials and temptations of the world turn you away from the prize. Pastor Dan shared this illustration with me last week that I just found really helpful. He said it's like someone running in a marathon, and at a certain point, the runner hits the wall. And his strength is depleted, and he doesn't know if he can go on. But then someone who's run the race before him, who's finished the race, comes up next to him and says, you're going to make it. Keep going. And he's telling him what to look out for. He's spurring him on. He's encouraging. He's telling him, making him aware of pitfalls along the way. And he says, I'm right here with you. I'm running with you. Look to me to be your strength. I'll help you get through it. Dan said that this whole sense of persevering, of striving, is meant to do that for us. We recognize Jesus is right alongside us, moving us to that final prize. Rest in the, in the presence of God himself. Why would we do any of this? Why should we listen to these warnings and admonitions? Last point, because the word of God is powerful. Because God's word is powerful. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I love verse 11, right? I love reading about the word of God being alive and powerful when we trust in what it says. Even if we don't trust it, God will accomplish his word. It's a sobering verse, especially with verse 12. It will either, 
That's what the Word of God does, right? It exposes us. It cuts through our very nature, our very being, and it exposes what's in there. It may expose that your heart has become hardened and disbelieving toward God. Or it might expose that you're just a normal, average believer who struggles. And he wants to work faith in you as he as the word exposes you and as you say, yes, it's true, Father, amen. Give me grace to believe what you say and the strength to live out what you say. God's word is not to be trifled with. It is not to be ignored. And so what we're hearing this morning is a call for everyone. If you're sliding into unbelief, you're dabbling with sin, maybe you're here this morning and you're just playing church. You like hanging out with Christians. You like being a part of the community of faith, but Jesus isn't at the center the rest of the week. He might not even be at the center right now while you're here. If that's you, you're in danger of not not entering into God's rest. We can't hide behind being a part of the believing community. It's what God wants to do in us. That's why... He's saying, if you ignore the, the word, you will not enter his rest. But it doesn't have to stay that way. God's, God says that today his offer is available. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This morning, if you're here and you may say you believe in Jesus, but you haven't ap- actually entrusted yourself to him, who he is, what he's done for your sin by dying on the cross and rising from If you haven't actually done it, he says, don't harden your heart. Hear the word of God. It is powerful, and you will be held account to it. God says the opportunity is still open. Put your faith in him. Or if you're just, as I said, normal average Christian, struggling, weighed down by the cares of the world or struggles with sin, you may be tempted to doubt and wonder. God says, look again. Listen again to the word. If you are his, the word will work in you. You may be worn out and worn down. You may be like, it says in the scripture, a broken reed or a smoldering wick. You know what God says? A, a, broken, a, a broken reed... A bruised reed he will not break. You might feel like you're going to break any minute. He says, oh, no, no, I'm not going to break it. Trust in me. I'll heal the reed. I'll strengthen the reed. Are you like a smoldering wick? Any, any breath of anything will blow you out. He says, oh, no, no, no. You trust in me, I'll fan the wick into a flame again. So stay with Jesus, friends. Stay with Jesus. Let's encourage one another to stay with Jesus because no one can hide from his word. No one. We can try to ignore it, but we all have to give an account to it. And so that's why he says, the writer, we are to fear unbelief. That's why we are to stress, strive to enter God's rest. It is a loving call from a gracious father who wants you to enjoy him to the full now and forevermore. So let's look to God's word. Let's believe God's word. Put your weight fully on God's word. It is powerful 
and through it, he will bring you now and ultimately into his eternal rest. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to actually read a prayer from John Calvin that is really suited to this. Grant to us, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir ourselves up more and more to fear your name and thus present ourselves in all of our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.